Hi, this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week in the studio, Charlie Nelms, a man who has been here at Indiana for too many years to count, I'll bet, huh, Charlie? Quite a few. Quite a few. Charlie Nelms, a higher education consultant now, has been in many locales a university administrator, a diversity pioneer. Uh, Charlie was here in Bloomington and around the state, too, when the university started thinking about, hey, we've got to think about our student body as a diverse body. Correct. That was something that, that had to develop. It wasn't always there. No, it didn't just fall out of a box. No one delivered it on a great slate of, uh, of a slate and say, this is what thou shalt do. I mean, you know, it had to be something that was imagined, okay? And you not only, you just can't imagine it into existence. You have to work to make it a case. And then once it's there, you have to nurture it and, and keep it going. Charlie, your history is fascinating because you were alive at times that we can... The people of this new generation who are alive, I wonder if they can believe that there was Jim Crow laws when you were alive. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I I attended, I I went to a school once for Black History Month, a little elementary school in Richmond, Indiana. And a little girl at the end, she raised her hand, Charlie, and she said, yes, what is it? She said, were you a slave? (laughs) And and I said, no. But it made for a wonderful teaching moment to talk about slavery. Okay, Uh, then, but also talk about people being slave to things now. Right. Yeah. Right. And uh, much of Jim Crow, much of uh, 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 the history post-Civil War was slavery by another name. Absolutely. Now, you were born in Arkansas. You were one of 11 kids, a family of subsistence farmers. Yes, absolutely. 11. I'm number five in the birth order. And as I say to people, we had a football team, and uh, <laughs> seven of the 11 are still alive, and I'm the oldest of the living uh, siblings now. Um, but I had these wonderful parents, uh, and I started working when I was five years old, as did all farm kids, because we all had jobs to do. Your parents conveyed to you a very important message. Absolutely. And that message was simply this. You can be anything you want to be. Now, I'm not sure mom and papa knew what anything was. Yeah. They didn't have to define it, but they said, you can be anything you want to be. And so I grabbed onto that, as did my siblings. And, uh, and we believe that, and that's the message that I try to convey in the book. And that's the message that I try to convey as I interact with uh, young people as well as people that I mentor. Now, you mentioned the book. Uh, that's been released uh, in 2019 by Indiana University Press. That's From Cotton Fields to University Leadership. Uh, all eyes on Charlie Nelms. Sure, sure. Whose eyes were on Charlie Nelms well, specifically? Well, specifically, Michael, the people who nurtured my dreams. Yeah. Uh, they were the teachers in the little Rosenwald School. They were my parents. They were the people who uh, were members of Shallow Missionary Baptist Church on the Shou- on the Buck Lake Road. And, and by the way, the term all eyes on Charlie, that is this whole notion of double consciousness that grew out of the work of W.E.B. Du Bois. Huh. And Du Bois talked about the fact that we straddle two worlds as black people. There are yeah. these expectations from your own people, but there are also expectations from Caucasians or white people. And so you have to walk that balance. But that whole notion, all eyes on Charlie, meaning everyone 
had some watchful eyes to see what would happen to you. And it's like a tug of war, maybe. Absolutely. The expectations. Absolutely. There's this expectation and there's that expectation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Was that tough? Oh, And tell me how tough. It was tough and it continues to be tough. You know, it's one thing for us to think about, well, that was then and this is now. But I think... Everything's fine now. That's right. No, not everything isn't fine now. But, you know, one of the things that if you focus on the future... Okay, and what you think you are capable of becoming, then you don't get caught up into what what you are then. Yeah, okay? yeah. You are more, okay, than you are now. We are all capable of being more than what we are now, and so that's the that's the whole notion behind uh, behind it. And so I did not focus a lot on. I mean, the circumstances were what they were. I mean, it was legalized apartheid. Yeah. That's what it was. Of course. Call it by any other name. We can call it segregation. We can call it, uh, what, uh, you know, lack of integration. But it was basically legalized kind of apartheid American style. There were institutionalized processes. Uh, in my hometown in Chicago, sure. there was blockbusting and sure. redlining sure. and all the rest. And the refusal of sure. banks to yeah. lend to black Absolutely. people. Absolutely. Absolutely. It just... Keep them, yeah, where they, absolutely. keep them where they should absolutely. be. Absolutely. And, you know, when Dr. King, you know, during the, during the uh, civil rights era, Dr. Yeah. King I- experienced some of his most uh, uh, racist and violent acts right. in the North. Right. Okay. That's not to excuse the people in the, North, in the South. Right. I'm not saying that. But by the time he got to Illinois, Chicago area, Cicero, all of those areas. Yeah. Okay. I mean, he was met with violent kind of, uh, kind of uh, force and that kind of thing. So, got hit in the head with a brick absolutely. in Marquette Park. Absolutely. So, yeah, uh, fell to his knees, yeah. bloody. But it, it, the point, though, it's really important for people to understand history. Yeah. Okay. And in this, in this era of social media, we can be seduced into thinking that things are a lot, so much better. Okay. Yeah. Or that era used to be the case. Okay. But you look at the voter suppression efforts in this country Absolutely. right now. Yeah. Voter suppression right now. Hundreds of thousands. That's right. Being disenfranchised. Yeah. So what we have is we have a crisis of credibility. Yeah. Because we profess to want and believe in one thing, but our behavior is inconsistent with what we say we value. Would you then say, uh, I'm just trying to put a positive spin on it, and as a white guy, I might try to do that, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Okay. That maybe our myth of things are better and we have high ideals, maybe it's something for us to aim Toward. That's right. Could we say that? Yeah, it's something for us to aim aim for. And uh, Benjamin Mays said it this way. Benjamin Mays was a longtime president of Morehouse College yeah. in Atlanta, Georgia. And he said, low aim, not failure is sin. So we need something to aim for, okay? And as we make progress, we should not be satisfied. We need to keep aiming higher and higher and higher. There's always more. There's always more. So we started with this whole notion of integration, but what we really want is a more equitable society. Right. Okay? And now they talk about inclusion. Inclusion is not enough. We want equity. We want a more equitable society for historically disenfranchised people by whatever characterization, whether it's LBGTQ, whether it's black, white, male, female, immigrant, we want a more equitable society. That's what I want. And so that's my aim is is to focus on equity. Does a fellow like you ever feel rage? Of course. I live with it. I manage it. How? Well, I manage it by focusing on what is possible as opposed to what is. Uh Uh-huh. Again. So, again, hope. 
You know, so you got to have hope. And so one of the things that I did in an earlier little book, and, and that is a little book of quotes, original quotes by me, not by dead people, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, start where you find yourself. And, and so I, I wrote in that little book, hope is what drives winter from the soul. Hmm. Hope. That's true. See, a community or people or society or an individual without hope, okay, will resort to a kind of acting out that may be violent, it may be self-deprecating, uh, it may be any number of things, you know, uh, destructive to oneself and to uh, the community of which you're a larger part. So hope is really, really important. Charlie, one day mm-hmm. I was taking a ride, a Sunday drive with mm-hmm. my wife in eastern Kentucky, uh-huh. and I saw a car pull up, and it was festooned with American flags uh-huh. and decals and all of that. A black man gets out of the car. Mm-hmm. He was the driver, and he was a veteran. He sure. had a baseball cap sure, on sure, that sure. shows what ship he had, mm-hmm. uh, had served on. And it just struck me. Here's a man who mm-hmm. believes in America. Mm-hmm. How can a black mm-hmm. man believe in America? Because we're very much a part of America's being. What brought America into existence and, and, and catapulted it into this 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 greater than life kind of some of it's myth, but we need myths. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, the mythology, if you go back and look at it, I mean, it has a way of encouraging uh, um, and propelling people. So, so, so I can appreciate and respect America, but I don't have to yield my right to criticize America for, and, 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 and not only criticize, but help it to become a better place, hold it accountable for being more. And that's what Dr. King kept talking about. Right. You know, he was talking about accountability, and that's what we're talking about today, making America more accountable, okay, and responsive to the needs of historically disenfranchised people. When you were a kid, Mm -hmm. you actually had to pick cotton before you went to school. <laughs> Go ahead. You you pick cotton before you went to school and after you came from school. I oh mean, my heavens! So so the whole thing, Michael. I mean, cotton was king. It was the in the eighteen hundreds. It was the greatest export. That's right. Of this country, That's right. cotton built America. It, it could be said absolutely. Cotton built America, and it was built on the backs of uh, of cheap labor. Who did the work? Who did the work? Who did the work, Charlie? Okay, so we did the work. And so, you know, I talk about in the book where I was paid $2.75 per hundred pounds. Wow. $2.75. So for every 100 100 pounds I picked, I got paid $2.75. And a cotton bowl is not a heavy heavy thing. So you just imagine how many bowls you needed to pick in order to be able to do that. And so the school system was not set up to educate us for, for, for life, going on to college and all of that. It was set up to make sure that the plantation owners and the sharecropping uh, uh, bosses yeah. had an adequate supply of labor. Right. Okay? Cheap labor. Black labor. Yeah. Okay? That's what it was set up to do. Yet, your father and mother sure. told you, be anything you want. You want to be. Were there books in your home? No, there were no books in my home, oh. and I talk about that in the book. So, so Mr. Ed, the man yeah. from whom my parents borrowed money to, to quote, make the crop. Okay? Right. 
um, uh, he would That's bring the slavery by another right, name, by right another there. name, and yeah. so he would bring a bags full of old newspapers, oh. West Memphis Times, the Commercial Appeal, Memphis Commercial Appeal, yeah. and occasionally there would be a Time magazine or New York Times, uh, you know, paper, whatever. And we would spend the week just reading that stuff, you know, just absorbing it. We had no electricity, so this whole notion of watching television, there was no television in my house, which was a good thing in, in lots of ways. For yes. the wrong Good thing for the wrong reason. Right. But, but be that it is, as it may, I developed this insatiable kind of appetite for books. And that was my way of escaping some of the horror and some of the drudgery that I experienced in everyday life. Now, um, did your siblings uh, share, any of your siblings share this love of reading Oh, with absolutely. You? Uh-huh. I mean, you didn't have a choice. I mean, that, that was, there was no, no real pastime, you know. But at any rate, and so of my 11 siblings, nine of us went on to some form of post-secondary education. And, and neither of our parents graduated even middle school. Yeah. But, um, and so all I'm saying is, and, and, and in some ways, I don't think we were that unusual, you know, because there were lots of people who are from Mississippi, Arkansas, those deep South states. Right. Okay. Who I have one friend. I was just talking with him before I came here. He was my roommate in college. There were 16 of them in their family. Okay. And in that family, there were a couple of dentists, a couple of physicians, a cancer specialist. Uh, he has a PhD in plant science, uh, on and on and on and on. Computer science and that kind of thing. Okay. And so there's a lot more people did lots of things in spite of the conditions that they found themselves living in, okay? Yeah. So, but at any rate, um, so I, I, I'm a hopeful person, Yeah. okay? And by telling my story, that's my way of trying to motivate and to energize young people of, of any ethnicity, okay? Uh, but historically disenfranchised people especially. Now, I'm going to give a little history, your mm-hmm. professional sure. history. Uh, mm-hmm. Back in 1978, uh, you were named an assistant professor of education. At about the same time, I guess, you were named an associate dean of student services that is correct. at the Northwest Campus, Gary. Right. Gary, Gary, Indiana. Were you uh, like the first black man to be in that kind of position? The fr- Absolutely. At, at Gary was a big city at one at, time. It was a big city at, yeah. at one time. and uh, Richard Hatcher. Yeah, Richard Hatcher appointed me to the Gary School Board. No kidding. I sure did. I sir. And Richard Hatcher just died uh, yeah. a couple of weeks ago. His funeral was uh, two weeks ago this past Friday. So I got to know him really well. Um, uh, Dan Oren Scannon, who uh, was an Indiana University graduate, worked for uh, John Ryan. Um, um, was one of my mentors up at IU Northwest. And uh, those were challenging periods. Uh, uh, but again, there were some well-meaning, hardworking people, okay, of all ethnicities uh, who supported this whole notion of a more inclusive university and that kind of thing. So I had a chance to be a part of that with Dan Orenskanen, Marion Moshan. And one of the things that I say in the book is, is that mentorship is, has been the common denominator across my entire life. And some of those mentors looked like me and some of them didn't. Right. Okay? But they all had one thing in common. They cared about Charlie. Yeah. Okay. That's and, important. And Dan Oren Scannon at IU Northwest was just someone that I had. Uh, he's now deceased, but an enormous amount of respect, uh, respect for 
Now, as I say, back in the late 70s, you start yeah. uh, achieving these sure. uh, these high-level positions. Sure. Were your parents alive at that time? Yes, my parents were alive. In what fact, do you think they thought of that? Oh, <laughs> I think my mama just thought, didn't know, you know. My people didn't have a lot of words. Uh-huh. You know, my, my parents didn't walk around and said, I love you, I love you. I knew they loved me. <laughs> we knew that they loved us the way they supported us yeah. and encouraged us in their own way. Right. Okay. And my mama would say, That's nice, Charlie. That's nice. That's what my, and Papa would just sort of say, yeah, that's good. That's good. And but that, you could read his face. You, huh? you could read the face. You yeah. knew, you know. And it was it was shared not only by my siblings and my parents, but by my, my, my community. Okay? The community celebrated when you had an accomplishment. Yeah. They celebrated, the entire community. And you've had an accomplishment or two. Uh, for instance, uh, – 1984, you were named a vice president at Sinclair Community College over in Dayton, Ohio. Dayton, Ohio. So you're moving around a yes. little bit. You're making a name for yourself. Yeah. Well, you know, what I was trying to do really, and one of the things that that I think is really important to say that when I came through graduate school at Indiana University for my master's and later on for my, my doctorate, there just really weren't that many African-American people with terminal degrees, uh-huh. okay? And so if you were willing to move, okay, there were opportunities for you. And so uh, I was willing to move, and fortunately I had this wonderful spouse and, and partner who um, – who believed we, we wanted to change the world and we're still trying to change the world. And so she was willing to move. So in the course of my career, I think I moved about nine times. Uh-huh. Okay? And, um, but again, you know, um, but we had a common goal and that is to try to make the world better, not just for ourselves, but for other people. Have you changed the world? I know I have. And the way I know it, and I don't mean to be cocky when I say that, but the way I know we've changed the world is because 25 of my uh, my protégés have become college presidents. Wow. Okay? And of all kinds of institutions, uh, many of them have become teachers, many of them have become lawyers and physicians and so on and so forth. So the way you change the world is not, you, you change the world by changing yourself. Yeah. Okay, that's number one. But number two, you change the world by investing in other people. Right. So I will never know, you will never know exactly how many people we have impacted and how we've changed the world because those people go on changing Hundreds, the world. Hundreds, thousands. Right. Okay. So that's, that's really what it's all about. And they, people say pay it forward. forward. That's, that's basically what you're doing. So people cared for you and you knew they cared Absolutely. for you. And then you took that and you said, now I'm going to care that's right. for this guy and that woman. That's right. That's yeah. right. And that's how I repay those people like Dan Orenskannon, like uh, L.A. Davis down at Lawrence A. Davis in Arkansas, or um, Lee Allen Torrance in Arkansas, or Bob Schaefer, who was the dean of students at Indiana University, or Glenn Nygreen, who was the dean of students at uh, Lehman College in the Bronx when I went there. Hmm. You know, And so I tried to pay those people back by doing the kinds of things for others that they did for me. Well, Indiana University got you back in 1987. You were named the chancellor of the Richmond campus. That would be Indiana University East. That is correct. That is Richmond, correct. right hard on the border of Ohio. That's right. The home of Wayne Works, where they, um, they, there was a kind of foundry there. And uh, they made all kinds of stuff. But um, and then, of course, they made school buses in Richmond, Indiana. 
Um, but uh, that was the least diverse of all of Indiana University's campuses. Is that so? Uh, when I arrived, as I recall, there were four or five black people at the university total working there. You're okay? kidding. That's right. But uh, And I had a wonderful experience uh, overall, some very supportive people that I continue to have maintained a relationship with, and uh, I get a chance to go back to Richmond occasionally and my wife and I have a scholarship endowment to support students from, uh, the, you know, East Central Indiana and that kind of thing. So I had a good experience. It wasn't a positive experience. Life is not positive. You're not oh, all positive. Okay. But so you learn. You try to take what you can, learn what you can, and then improve what you can and keep on moving. Now, for a fellow who, who likes to think about the sure. positive uh-huh. and, and keep it on an optimistic sure. level, I wonder if you'd be uncomfortable if I ask, why wasn't it a positive experience? Well, because a lot of people didn't feel and still don't feel that America, certain communities are ready for certain kinds of people who don't look like the people who've been the dominant, who are the dominant people. Okay? Uh-huh. Yeah. And so you're always in this kind of state of having to prove your worth, your value, your belongingness. Constant okay. pressure on constant, you. Constant pressure, okay? And so the, what I say is I am who I am. Yeah. And you can take it or leave it. Right. But I don't owe you anything to prove that somehow I'm acceptable to you. Okay? Did you have to get to a point where was, was there a time in your life where you said, I want to prove to this white man or these white people that I'm okay. Yeah, I mean, there was a time when I wanted to do that. But you see, I had the advantage of having come out of that southern, deep south stuff yeah. where my parents had instilled this notion that you can be whatever you wanted to right. be. That, that's number one. So I had that going for the, me. The foundation they is had there. had that foundation. And the other thing that I had is, is that my teachers in this little colored or black Negro school yep. had reinforced that belief. So I left there believing that I could do what I needed to do. So when I got to Indiana University or when I got to Columbia University as a Ford fellow and someone told me I couldn't do statistics, I knew that was a lie, (laughs) okay, because I had these other people that told me. But then I found a person like Glenn Ludlow, okay, a statistician here at Indiana University, okay, who helped me to really improve my statistical understanding and appreciation. Someone like August Eberly, a white guy, Okay, who really said, Charlie, you can't write worth a nickel. Then he proceeded to say, and this is how I'm going to work with you. Wow. Okay, and so. uh, But they cared. They cared. Yeah. That was. That's the key thing. That's the key thing is caring. So you then had the opportunity to take over a campus, Mm -hmm. University of Michigan Flint in 1994. You were named chancellor over there. Sure. A much more diverse campus. Yeah. Let's put it this way. Flint, Michigan was a much more diverse city. Yes. But the campus wasn't uh, proportionately right. more diverse, okay? Right. Because the people there, many of them, wanted to be a replica of the University of Michigan and Ann Arbor. Uh-huh. But there's only going to be one University of Michigan and Ann Arbor, and it's not located in Flint, and it's not located in Dearborn, Michigan, okay? Right. So there was a resistance, if you will, from some people there who said, we don't want to change because becoming more diverse would mean that we're going to lower our standards. How many times have you heard that? Oh, we're going to lower the that's standards. That's all you hear. Okay? Yeah. And so there was a very um, tough period. And around the same time, General Motors was on the decline uh, in terms of the automobile industry. They closed the Buick division entirely, which was located in Flint, Michigan. So there were some very, very challenging times to be affiliated with the university. But we managed to plant some, um, some, some seeds that are now bearing fruit. 
And so when I go back 25 years later, I go uh, quarterly because I'm on the board of the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, one uh-huh. of the founders of General Motors. Yeah. And I see the things that we seeded 25 years ago bearing fruit. It's happening. That's right. It's happening. Okay. So that's why you're optimistic that's because you've seen the that's right the results of optimism. Absolutely. Things happen. That's what that's all I'm saying. You know, there's an African proverb who says that we leaders will plant seeds who trees whose shade they will never enjoy. But the future the future somebody will be there. Will be there. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. You then came sure. back to Indiana University Bloomington. Sure. Mm-hmm. This is going on about this is about twenty years ago. That's right, absolutely twenty twenty years ago. Vice President of Institutional Development. Again, the reason for the title of this book, mm-hmm. from cotton fields to university mm-hmm. leadership. That's right. You've been in it's almost countless positions of leadership well, at university. I have, I have, and and I consider that to be a real uh, blessing. Really, and, you know, it's not luck. I don't believe in luck. You know, that's why I don't play the lottery. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, I can't imagine people gambling their way into prosperity, but that's something that we sell. But that's another story for uh, a story for another day. Right. So, so what brought me to Indiana University? There was a protest in about uh, 1996-97 led by the Student Coalition, African American, um, uh, LBGTQ, uh, Asians, uh, etc. And All the people who are outside of the majority. That's right. Okay. And so that led then to an enormous amount of criticism on the part of students. And it was a lot of media, national media attention in the Chronicle of Higher Education and that kind of thing. And so I was at the University of Michigan at Flint and got a call from my dear friend and mentor, Ken Gross Lewis, the late Ken Gross Lewis. And he explained to me some of what was going on here and wondered if I would come and have a conversation with, uh, with him and, uh, and with uh, Miles Brand. And I did. In other words, they wanted to pick your brain? Well, we wanted to pick my brain, but also talk about the possibility of my returning to Indiana University. They were hoping to recruit And uh, so that resulted then in my coming back to Indiana University. So Indiana University was one of the first major universities in America to have a vice president who had diversity and equity as a major part of the portfolio. But my portfolio was not just diversity. It was also the university's honors college. It was institutional research planning and analysis. It was some responsibility working with regional campuses. Okay, they they didn't keep you solely in a box. No, and I refused to accept a position where I would be solely in a box. Right. Okay. He's our guy for black things. That's right. No. Okay. I understand, appreciate, and and value that. I'm committed to it. Um, But but if you allow yourself to just be marginalized in a particular kind of way, okay, then you get saddled with the responsibility, okay, for creating the change in that particular area when, in fact, you're not hiring all of the people. So you got to have these partnerships and these relationships and accountability and all of that in the dean's office, in the provost office, and all of the vice presidents collectively. And so that's that's the message that I brought. That's the agenda that I pushed. And I work then to have collaborators as opposed to a single solo actor. So people to help. That's right. It's, it's a group effort. That's right. It's a group. It's a collective effort. It was then and it will forever be. 
That's all the time we have this week. Join us next week for part two of our conversation with Charlie Nelms, university administrator, diversity pioneer, and advocate for historic black colleges and universities. Thanks for listening to Big Talk. Thank you.